0: hear the word of the Lord. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, "...with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands..." Live with your wives in an understanding way. Show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The word of the Lord be to God. You may be seated. I will not ask for a show of hands, (laughs) but most of you have been with us the last few weeks and especially last week when I gave you a homework assignment, the homework assignment was to read Ezekiel 16, for you see it is a very interesting, poignant, vivid, and almost shocking passage that describes the great mystery that Christ has in relationship to his bride. We've been talking about husbands and wives. We talked about the wives first, and we talked about the wife living in a place of difficulty in that she's in a world where she is to live in a relationship to her husband And that relationship is to be likewise. It's to be the same relationship that a slave was in relationship to a master in the ancient world. The same relationship that a citizen, a subject, had in living in the realm, in the kingdom, with the emperor and the imperial government and all of his governors and rulers over them. It is a suffering relationship, living in the realm of an emperor who may be a tyrant, a master who may be overbearing, a husband who may be an unbeliever. And the role that we are called to have is that of a suffering servant. We talked at length the very first time about that word submit means to be under in order. There's an order to it. There's a reason for it. There is a reason that God has set these things the way he has. And we spoke of this in all three of those relationships and then husbands and wives. And We talked about the key thing for the husband is that he lived with his wife with our text says understanding, but it's the word knowledge. In the Old Testament, that word knowledge meant more than just knowing, it meant intimacy and a sensitivity and a knowing of his wife and that he was to treat her accordingly. And we hinted that all of this, as we looked at Ephesians 6, moves us toward an understanding. If we can understand this relationship, it helps us understand, even though we cannot understand it completely, because it is in exactly that. It's a a mystery how Christ loved his bride, the church, and gave himself for her. And how what he does principally for his bride is he cleanses her, atones for her, makes her fit and adorns her with the beauty that comes from the blessing of his abundance. And there's a picture of that in the Bible. And it's in Ezekiel 16. Now it's, a very, it's one of the longest chapters anywhere in the Bible. Ezekiel 16 continues for 63 verses. In fact, it's, this one chapter is longer than three of the minor prophets. Uh, this is a long text and it is shockingly vivid. In fact, the translators have struggled, especially in the latter half of this particular chapter, they've struggled to be euphemistic and very uh, wise and prudent and clean in the translation, because the translation itself is quite raucous, so much so that the critical scholars in the Bible and some of the liberals, that did, this couldn't possibly be the words of the prophet Ezekiel, because the prophet Ezekiel was a man who was obsessed with holiness. He was a priest, and he was a prophet that, that spoke to God's people out of his order of priesthood when they were going into Babylonian captivity. All the prophets had talked about the day would come when the Chaldean, Habakkuk talked about the day when the Chaldean would would discipline and would punish God's people for their grave sins. But it was several centuries away. Even over a hundred years earlier, the prophet Isaiah had seen the great destruction that the Assyrians brought upon the northern kingdom. But God preserved Zion, He preserved Jerusalem and Judah. And they did not fall to the sword of the Assyrian invader. But now the time has come when God's wrath has fallen upon Zion, the holy hill, Jerusalem, that which was thought of as an impregnable fortress of God's keeping. It was the shadow of the Almighty. It was the quiet and dwelling place of God. It had the temple. It had the city of David, the palace. And yet it had fallen to the conqueror. And not only were the people conquered, but they were captured and taken off to Babylon in captivity. And Ezekiel, who was a priest there in that very temple serving, went with the people into captivity. Jeremiah who witnessed the early parts of the siege of Jerusalem and wrote the Lamentations, the great lament over the fall of God's city, he did not go into captivity. He remained with the people and sought refuge in Egypt for a while. But Ezekiel, he is in captivity. He's with the strangers and the aliens and the sojourners in Babylon. Babylon. And he had counseled God's people over and over that this was the curse of the covenant. In Deuteronomy, before they ever entered the land, God said, I'm going to give you the land, but you must go in and possess it. And what you must do, God said, is you must drive out the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite. These were the dwellers in Canaan that had been there for centuries. They were dwelling in the land in the days of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And they were a godless people. They were a savage people. They had all kinds of things from incest to child sacrifice to to, uh, incredible tortures that they brought upon the people. Horrible people standing in need of God's wrath for generations. But the Lord said the iniquity of the Amorite is not full. But one day, It was, and God sent his people under Joshua in there to drive out the Canaanite. Now, let me stop right here and just sort of help us a little bit. When the Bible speaks of wrath against the pagan, heathen, godless nations, it's not so much that he's concerned about matters of ethnicity as much as he is concerned about matters of ethic, ethnicity, generations, families, races, are always in the soft part of the heart of God. God wants all peoples, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every kindred to come to him. And he has opened the gospel to all Nations, But it is the behavior that characterized these particular debauched, depraved, sinful nations that the Lord will not tolerate. And He constantly called His people to come out from among them and to be separate and to live godly and holy lives. And I'll just say this, if we are not perceiving now that we're beginning to live in a godless country a godless land. If Isaiah in the good days said he was a man of unclean lips and he dwelt in the midst of a people of unclean lips, if he could pronounce upon himself the woe of death, woe is me, for I am unclean, I am undone, then we certainly in this day and time can begin to see it. How God has been driven out. You can't have a spiritual vacuum in a people. You either drive out God by removing the memory of Him, by removing His commandments, by removing any notion of prayer and adoration of Him. You either drive out God or you drive out sin. And God called upon His people to drive out the sin. And they didn't do it. They didn't do it. Instead, God's people, when they entered the land, began to compromise and intermarry. They had had the commandment in the wilderness, but when they got into the land of milk and honey, it was okay to permit just a little bit of a fudge factor, a little bit of a a heresy, a little bit of disobedience. And they began to tolerate it more and more until after a while, to the eye of God, to the all-seeing, judging eye of God, there seemed to be little difference between His people, His chosen precious people, the, the seed of Abraham, the children of Abraham, and all the pagan nations. It's harder to see the distinction. I ask us to consider what manifest distinctions there are today between the way we, as those who claim the name of Christ, live our lives and the way the people around about us live theirs with respect to obedience, with respect to materialism, with respect to general ethics, with respect to language, with respect to marriages, with respect to raising and educating children, and we can go on and on, with respect to conducting business, the way we treat employees and others. When that distinction is hard for even God to see, it's time for the judgment of God to fall. And that's what happened to Israel in the Babylonian captivity. And Ezekiel, Portions of Ezekiel's prophecy are a theodicy. That is, they they defend God. He explains God how that God's great wrath only comes upon them because there's great sin. That great punishment matches great sinfulness and disobedience. And that the extent of God's wrath upon his people where he would take them into captivity and destroy their city is only because they had great great depravity and so this particular passage I'm going to read it and make a comment or two on it because I think it is vivid I want you to read the whole chapter I'm only going to read the first portion it's a, it's a, it's a saga it's a great uh, story how God deals with his people and the picture is of God as a savior of his people and I'll just go ahead and give them the punchline Chad the very last passage talks about atonement God says, I will make atonement. But before he gets there, you'll see the awful sinfulness depicted of God's people with the picture of God's people turning into a harlot. This is an imagery that we saw quite clearly in Hosea when we studied it a few years ago, how that God sees his people just walk away from him, turn their back on him, which is bad enough. But then they turn to idols and they turn to wickedness and they turn to all sorts of sordid, pornographic living. And this is God's judgment upon that people. But let's let's read the delightful part of the story. Let's read the good start and listen to the the words. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem. What's in in picture here is the holy city. The Jerusalem of the ancient world. Jerusalem is always the encapsulation of God's people. Behind the walls of Jerusalem live God's sacred people. And it's Jerusalem that is the concern. Say to, thus saith the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. There's the the worst thing that could have been said. You never you didn't start out as much. You started out as the offspring of an unholy union. Godless mother, godless father, Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites. You You ought to read on those. They were not exactly the same kind of tribes. In fact, they were very different. One actually was indigenous to the land. The other was, a, was, a, was an Indo-European invader from centuries earlier. But you're the offspring of these two vile heritages. And as for you on your birth, this is God talking to Christians. I'll just go ahead and say it because that's what it is. This is God talking to you and me. On, as for your birth, On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. The day you were born, you were abandoned. You were born in sin. You were helpless. Everything that goes to proper postnatal care was denied this little child. The cord was not cut. You were not washed with water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt. That's probably a reference to the rubbing of salt for the purposes of disinfecting a child's just full of germs (laughs) and it's a disinfectant. Nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. A foundling completely abandoned, left to die, really. And this happened in the ancient world, often sadly to the little females, the little baby girls. They were not prized and treasured as the males were. And in that godless culture, they had their misunderstanding. They didn't understand that male and female made up the image of God. And they rejected the image of God and threw out the female. We're in a society right now that's rejecting God's commandments and God's order of male and female created He them, and this is the, the origins. No, I pitied you, nor do any of these things to you out of com- nor did any of these things to you out of compassion. Here is a child that is not only abandoned, but there's no compassion. There's no caring. This is someone that is completely neglected, completely thrown out and helpless. For you were cast out on the open field and you were abhorred on the day that you were born. What a pitiful image of this little newborn baby girl thrown out into the desert to live but a few hours, to be abandoned, backs turned, nobody cared. God said to his people, that's really what you were like back in the day. When I found you, you were in that kind of shape. Do you realize your unworthiness, your helplessness, in your sinful condition? You were born in sin. You were helpless, abandoned, cast out, without God, without hope in the world, Paul says in Ephesians 2. Then, verse 6, When I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. He repeats it. I said to you in your blood, live live in that condition God pronounced spoke life new birth regeneration calling from what would be a certain death to a life verse 7 I made you flourish like a plant of the field And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. So now the picture is that under the loving care of God and His sanctifying work, there is growth. Not just life, but growth. And there is development completely. Listen to the description. Your breasts were formed, your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Here's the picture of the young woman beginning to grow up in childhood and into puberty and moving on, becoming well-formed, well-nourished. When I passed by you again, verse 8, and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. Now she's grown. And the Lord says, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. Betrothal. God said, I promise you. God laid down a promise. This language, you remember from the book of Ruth, of Boaz and Ruth, this idea of putting a garment into cover, it's making a claim, it's preserving the virginity and the purity and keeping everything proper and holy before the Lord. This is my favorite portion anywhere in the Old Testament. Listen to what God said to this young foundling that has now grown up. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. That's Jesus taking a bride. You became mine. Not just a covenant, a promise, but a fulfillment of that promise. Whatever it takes to make you mine, to fit you to be my bride is what I will do. And he lists what he did. Notice in most of these instances, they're in threes, in in triplets. I bathed you with water. I washed off your blood from you and I anointed you with oil. Boy, if I were a preacher, I could stop right here and go to town (laughs) because that's the work that God does in us. He cleanses us. He atones for us. And He pours the balm of the oil of the Spirit of God over our souls and anoints us as His very own and makes us fitted Now we're clean. Now we look right. Now we smell right. He's done his work of grace in us. And notice, I clothed you with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather and wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. Did you get the picture of the adjectives there, the fine, the embroidered, the fabrics? In other words, I robed you in splendor. By the way, these are some of the same fabrics that are spelled out in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. This is a, The tabernacle is a picture of Christ where the, the curtains are stretched over the staves. It's like skin stretched over bone. It's a symbol of humanity, of incarnation. This is what God now has done for His people. He has... Clothed us in the righteousness and the beauty of Christ Himself. And I adorned you with ornaments. I put bracelets on your wrist and chain on your neck. I put a ring on your nose. And by the way, that was an ancient custom. Earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. When we get to the point of the crown, we've seen that not only was this young woman adorned for proper marriage and to be a wife, but she was to move to be a princess and then a queen. She was put in that position. That's what Christ does for His bride He treats her like a queen. What do you do for your wife, men? How do you treat her? This is what the Lord does. And it's interesting to me that this is dazzling beauty. And yet we can read old Peter, he says, don't adorn yourself with the earrings and the plaiting of the hair and the wearing of the garments. Why not? It's because God has already adorned you with something far better. And that's the character of Christ. And you don't need so much of that other stuff to make you look good. Because as our text said, you're pleasing in the sight of God. This is what God looks at. He looks at the adornment of Christ that's in your life. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothing was fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. If I was a preacher, I could preach this too. The making of the bread had in it the oil. You had to have the oil to be able to to bake the bread. But then it had the honey, the sweetness. Sweeter to my lips than honey are thy words, said the psalmist. Remember that? Thy words were found and I did eat them and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoice. This is the bread of life. That is our feast, our feast, the bread of life. Jesus himself in his fullness and in his presence. And she had all of that. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. There it is. She becomes the queen. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. It was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you. When you see this this queen adorned in all this finery, eating the sumptuous fare with unsurpassable beauty, do you remember the bloody, little, wretched foundling out in the field? That's, That's the scope of the grace of God. You are perfect through the splendor that I bestowed on you, declares the Lord. We are perfect through the splendor that God by His grace has bestowed on us. Well, there's a whole lot of things that need to be said and a whole lot of things that need to be discussed when we're talking about living the Christian life and moving toward that moment one day but we've already got a glimpse of it because John the revelator had a vision of it and this is what he said in Revelation 21 I saw the holy city that's Jerusalem that's to whom the Lord is speaking new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband